Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and we're pleased to have as our guest, Canyon Sam. Canyon Sam is a San Francisco-based writer and performance artist. Her book, Sky Train, published in 2009, is at once memoir, history, and travel narrative, giving voice to Tibetan women. Welcome to our show, Canyon. Thank you, Shana. Canyon, talk to me a little bit about how you came for the first time to go to China and then on to Tibet in 1986. Was there a specific event in your life that propelled you to make the trip? I just was sort of at the end of my rope as far as my life in America. I was in my late 20s. I was in a good job, but I thought it was kind of dead end and I had done a lot of activism and become disillusioned and I thought, well, it's time for me to hit some of my other life goals from my youth. One of them was to live in China for a year since I was third generation Chinese-American. My grandfathers had been born in the United States but my grandmothers had been born in China and they had you know, both gone back and forth, my grandfathers too. And so – my whole growing up, China was closed, absolutely closed and it opened up in the late 70s and some of the first people they had back for tourists were Chinese Americans and then around the early 80s, mid 80s, they had this campaign and they said overseas Chinese return home to the warm embrace of the motherland. So I thought that they were talking to, you know, all Chinese, ethnic Chinese who lived around the world and – um I planned to go back for a year, travel for half the time and, and teach English or do some something constructive to contribute to socialism for a year. Now I realize it was a campaign to to lure overseas Chinese money back to back to the PRC. But I was, you know, looking into teaching opportunities and so forth. In the seventies through college I was, you know, left leaning and really supported socialism and I wanted to contribute to the, their great socialist experiment. Of course, you know, understand by then they, it was all propaganda what they were telling us about their society and the success of socialism in, in the PRC. So I went back and thought, you know, I'd return home to the warm embrace of the motherland but it wasn't to be. Um, and my fifth week I actually landed in Tibet because I had a whole list of places I wanted to travel and Tibet was on the list. So from there it just sort of took off. Just before we start talking about your time in Tibet, which I know was pivotal for you, um, did you identify very strongly as being Chinese-American before you went or living in San Francisco and growing up in San Francisco as you did with such a large Chinese-American population? Did you feel American? No, I felt American. You know, I was raised in the 60s and just across Golden Gate Park from the Haight-Ashbury and I thought that the free speech movement and anti-war protest and rock and roll and social revolution was how society was, you know, because I grew up in the 60s and the 70s and I thought everything was about revolution. Well, I lived in a kind of a suburban neighborhood, you might say, of San Francisco. But because it was the height of the anti-war movement, there was a commitment at one time, I think it was during the Johnson years, to have a, a, a march and rally every Sunday every week from somewhere downtown or City Hall down to Golden Gate Park to Speedway Meadow or the Polo Fields and have a big rock concert. 
And so every Sunday we would watch this parade of anti-war protesters all day long and that was my sort of political education as well as reading the paper every day. When you uh, first went to China, were you surprised in those four or five weeks that you spent traveling? I know you spent very little time in any one place in China and kept feeling sort of propelled to move on. Were you surprised at what you found in, in China when you first went in 1986? Yes, I found a lot of poverty and I found a lot of distrust of any outsiders and a lot of uh, complete ignorance of the outside world. Yeah, a very heavy hand of the government. Very heavy hand. In your book, you talk about arriving in Tibet and finding um, a very different kind of environment and a very different kind of climate. Talk to me a little bit about juxtaposing China with Tibet at that time in 1986 for yourself. Well, even though I was thinking that I would uh, you know, return home to the warm embrace of the motherland, the, the Chinese were very impersonal. They weren't used to outsiders and they had been taught, you know, through whatever 30 years of communism that America was their enemy. In fact, I remember one time they used to come out and stare at me. One time in a train cabin, they, they were on all three levels of the berths, you know, like 40 people packed in, hallways, floors, three levels, just staring at me on this overnight train. Same thing in train stations, public parks, uh, you know. They were just attracted to anybody because they had never been exposed to the outside world. And you were obviously American to them. I was obviously ethnic Chinese but different, you know, in how I dressed, what I – you know, how I held myself, the fact that I was alone, not with a group of people. So, but I found them very impersonal, not friendly at all, not warm, whereas the Tibetans right away were extremely uh, direct and friendly and gracious and welcoming and – now I realize, now I know that they thought I was Tibetan. At that time, I thought these are really warm, friendly people. But now I realize that they thought I was Tibetan returning, ah. you know, like I was from Canada or I was from Dharamsala or something. Why do you think that they thought you were Tibetan, Canyon? I guess just the way I look. Any specific features that bring that out or, or familiarity that you think you conveyed or? Well, let me just say that. I felt right at home there right away and I had a few deja vu moments where I, I said, oh, I've been here before. So I think there might have been something maybe in just, you know, what they sensed about me or something. But I was very happy there, very completely at home and I think I told you that I lived in this ninth century monastery and I realized afterwards that I'd never seen any Westerners there. And somebody told me that he had gone there and immediately the security police came. So as soon as somebody in that housing complex of locals saw a foreigner, they called the police, whereas I'd lived there all summer. And you blended in. Yes. And then, you know, I was friends with all the neighbors of the family and so forth. And But I think one of my favorite compliments was that Mrs. Toring – I, I, she invited me to stay with her for the summer when I interviewed her. In Dharamsala. Uh, this is in Rajpur in central Tibet. She um, she would turn to me after a while and she would – a couple times she said, I wouldn't say this to a foreigner but you're like one of us. You take such an interest. And you talk about meeting your very good friend Tashi. 
in Tibet for the first time. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of, of being welcomed by someone and striking up a friendship across cultures? I met her at her place of work the first day I was there. And I didn't think much of it be, but except that she was helpful and she spoke English, whereas the other people who were helping me couldn't be bothered, were trying to ignore me. Um, you, you have to understand in China in those days and still maybe now, they don't have an idea. They don't have a sense of a, a service attitude, you know, like courtesy and can I help you and – Or at least from an American viewpoint yes, of a courtesy right. attitude. They will sort of ignore you unless they have to. So anyway, she was the only one that was helpful and could speak English and they pushed her forward because I was uh, persisting in what I needed, you know. So I remember her from that and the next day we just bumped into each other and uh, she was extremely gracious and warm and we just struck up a conversation and, uh, you know, there was a friend of mine who was a British guy who was there. This is at my hotel and he told me later um, that he watched us and he said it was like electricity. She was saying, I'll come back and come to my house for tea someday and so she just took me there that afternoon and then I met her mother and we got on great and they said, how long are you going to stay here? And I said, at least a month. I really like it. And they said, well, just stay here with us. So I spent the whole summer. <laughs> and you moved into their house and became part of the family virtually. Well, like the, the Tibetans, you have to understand, have their houses open. They often have people stay for long periods of time, relatives or friends or so, yeah, I stayed the summer and after a while I started trekking in the countryside and I used it as a base. And, and then after a while, of course, I became interested in other parts of Tibet, traveled in other parts of Tibet, Amdo and Kham. And uh, I did try to go back to China, but I didn't like it. So I ended up in Dharamsala and lived in Dharamsala. Um, when you were living with Tashi's family in Tibet, what struck you as being similar in terms of family structure and customs and what felt very, very different? They had a very close-knit family. I'll give you an example. There was a Tibetan who was from a remote region. Actually, uh, you know, we're in Bloomington here and Taikster Rinpoche was head of, head of the Tibet Center. He was the abbot of Kumbum. Okay, so I met a young woman who was from that area, from the rural area near there in Amdo, about a year or two ago. And she said – I mean this is so remote they don't speak Chinese. Mm -hmm. And she said – she came to America. She's working with this nonprofit and you know. So she said, it's very strange here for me, she said, because in my town, I mean in where I'm from, we have one house. All of us, 11 of us live there. And here you have huge houses. And the children each have their own room and the parents have no idea what their children are mm -hmm. doing with their lives. And she said it's just not done there, you know. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Shauna Ritter, your host, and our guest is Canyon Sam, author of Sky Train, a book about Tibetan women. Canyon, you said that you spent part of that year um, also in Dharamsala, which is the refugee community for many Tibetans. Can you talk a little bit um, about your experience in Dharamsala? But before that, could you set the stage for us a little bit historically? Um, Tibet was invaded, I believe, in 1959 by China. Well, the communists took over China in 49, and I think it was January 50. They said that they were going to take Tibet, but they didn't say that. They said they were going to liberate Tibet. 
So they came in 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 the early 50s. There was quite a strong resistance movement, especially strong in the mid-50s. And then there was a full-scale military invasion in 59. That's when His Holiness the Dalai Lama fled and uh, eventually tens of thousands of Tibetans fled. So there's – ever since then, the Tibetans – the 50 years now, the Tibetans have been in exile. When you went to Dharamsala for the first time in 1986 – what was the culture in Dharamsala like compared to the culture that you found in Lhasa and in Tibet? Well, there's no comparison because in India, you know, it's a free society. It's a democratic society. So for instance, they had a whole, um, you know, community in exile there, uh, a major library, major archives, offices, medical centers, schools, temples recreated in exile. In China – they destroyed, you know, over 90 percent of the temples uh, and the Chinese were in control. They were in control since the 50s really right. and especially since 59. Um, how did you become interested in first? I know that you interviewed around 36 women. You went back after your 1986 trip again to Dharamsala and to Tibet again if I'm correct and you started interviewing women. What made you decide to take um, your experience, your travel experience and your own personal discoveries and turn those into research? What happened uh, was that at the end of my first trip, actually in January 87, I worked with the international, first international conference on Buddhist nuns and I got to know Tibetan nuns and the situation of uh, – of Tibetan nuns in the society and helped raise funds for them, which is now called the Tibetan Nuns Project. Then when I went back in 1990, I lived in the government area, Gangan Kishong, and I was – this was after the, right after the Nobel Peace Prize. So I was doing work with the, one of the offices of the government in exile and I realized there were no women in the government. There were no women in the literature in the major library uh, or in the religion. So – I started being curious about, you know, what the experiences of women were and how they were different than men, and I decided to start an oral history project of women, just just out of my own curiosity. And it, it first covered a range of class backgrounds, geographical areas, ages, generations, like that. So it took me several years to raise money and interview all these women, and they're not just in in Asia. There are Tibetan women also in. Switzerland, which has got the largest population of Tibetans outside Asia and uh, North America. I'll come back to the interviews in just a minute, but I'm curious, um, the first time that you were in Tibet in um, 1986, within the household structure and the family structure and the day-to-day life, did you notice a very different way in which women and men interacted with society at large and expectations for women and men? I think the thing that was striking to me was that uh, – and this has became more and more so in, in subsequent trips – is that you know, in order to make a living and so forth like that, the Tibetan men looked more and more assimilated. So they would dress like Chinese and they would – their hair and their speech and they would speak Chinese and they would uh, – you know, whereas the women were holding the, the um, traditions. One of the most striking things that – happened when I was there on my first trip was that my Tibetan mother had a a mild heart attack. 
So after a week or so, um, we were supposed to take her to the hospital for her EKG. And she has – you have to understand, she, she has a long traditional black you know, ankle-length dress with a striped apron, which is for married women in Tibet. And she's got her colorful ribbons and her braided hair and it's piled atop her hair. That sort of makes her conspicuous as a Tibetan, whereas the, the Chinese women had just come out of the Mao years where they had eight regulated hairstyles for women and so forth. Anyway, long story short, she could not – we could not get her – this test because these these technicians in the CKG who are Chinese, of course, just told her like, go sit there, and she, everybody else would come in and she'd wait on them, and they would say, go sit down, you know, sort of like the back of the bus type thing. So uh, when I realized what was happening, uh, that she, they were just putting her off, I was just incensed um, because I said, you know, she's Tibetan, you're in her country. And did she eventually receive the medical care that oh, she yes, needed? Oh, yes, but they were very rude, very rude. And did you find that to be sort of standard treatment between the Chinese who are occupying Tibet and the native Tibetans? I, I don't know if it's standard treatment. Um, you have to understand by then, this is in 86, so hundreds of thousands of Tibetans were killed or imprisoned by then by the Chinese. Now the situation is quite different but at that time they had you know, told – they had brainwashed the population that these Tibetans are backward, they're superstitious, they're primitive, you know, they're less than us, so forth and so on. They don't have you – know, they're high altitude. That's why they're not intelligent because their brains are small. You know, just years and years of this sort of propaganda whereas now it's a whole 180 degrees. Now it's like our mysterious exotic – you know, Western Door, it's now the number one tourist attraction in China. Right. And they're for, for Chinese for to Chinese. go to Tibet. Right. Yeah. Now it's their, you know, Niagara Falls, like in 1950. It's like, woo woo, mysterious, beautiful mountains and llamas. And that's since the SkyTrain was built. That's recently, yes. Okay. Let's go back to your, to your um, beginning of your oral history project and you're starting to interview women um, in various parts, in, in Canada, in Switzerland. Um, how did you choose the women that you would interview and were there some sentient questions that you asked each of them that just felt to be the most important questions in order for you to gain an understanding of Tibetan women's voices? Well, uh, unfortunately, this process has taken so long. I'm a little – it's a little foggy, my memory of the early – that was about – 50, 20 years Almost ago. 20 years ago, right? So, um, but, you know, obviously they had to have a really sharp memory and they had to be able to be open and comfortable talking to me, often through a translator. And they had to have a point of view or a perspective in, you know, status in society that, that gave me a new insight into the culture. Um, uh, you know, I only have four women in this book, so you, you can understand that there's a lot of wonder, wonderful interviews that were left out. Going back to that time, I know it's 20 years ago and it's, and it's a while back and it's been a very long process to get from there to the publication of this book and we'll talk about that in a moment. But do you remember any aha moments for yourself oh, from many, those interviews? there were many, yeah. Could you share a couple with us? I guess the first one was – I think this was one of my first interviews and this was in 91. So I had a good Tibetan-Swiss friend and I was in Switzerland and she sort of referred me to this older woman, maybe in her 60s, and said, I think she would be a good interview for her, for you. So I sort of set that up and I 
um, went out to her. She lived in the suburbs, very traditional. You know, she didn't look like she had been assimilated to, to Swiss German society at all. And um, her husband sat down in the interview with us. So I kind of hinted like this is a women's interview, women's project, and he, they just both shook their heads. Anyway, he had been married to her, her, her sister first and he was a wealthy landowner, owned a lot of agricultural land. He wanted to produce a male heir. So she didn't do that. So he married her who was the youngest, younger sister mm -hmm. and then she had sons and so forth. But what happened was at some point in the interview, he interrupted and he said, yes, I saw all the troops. I was in Lhasa on business and I was – and I saw all these troops and the tanks and the – you know, you have to understand that Tibet sat out World War I and World War II. They were in self-imposed isolation for many, many years. So they really didn't have any knowledge of mo the modern world. And they – the Chinese came in. They outnumbered the people two to one. They outnumbered the militia 25 to one. Tibet was also a Buddhist country, so it's nonviolent. So they had tanks surrounding the city pointed in. They had military troop movements, exercises all over the city. They had machine guns and tanks. One of my interviewees said, you know, we saw this tank. We thought it was some animal we never met before. We, the monks all went and got their axes and tried to chop it, you know, thinking it was a live animal that was moving around. So he, he ran back and he, you know, galloped on his horse and he said, we got to get out of here. In the communist system, we're going to be persecuted because we own land. And he got the kid, you know, two sons mm -hmm. and two wives and he said, well, take my best friend. And his best friend was a high-ranking religious figure who also owned a lot of land so would be persecuted under communism. Well, long story short, the Rinpoche invited him in for tea and then he um, – kind of talked in a very circular manner and this man didn't know what he was saying and he he realized at one point that the Rinpoche was objecting to, to his wives going with them. So he had to choose between uh, saving this Rinpoche and saving his wives. So that was a real potent example of, of that happening because I suddenly really realized what position he was in because in Tibetan Buddhist thinking it's, it would produce very, very negative karma for him not to save a Rinpoche who was going to be probably killed. This was a system coming in that believed that religion was poison. Right. You know. So um, that was one really riveting moment because I also realized that the position it left her in. She stayed behind, the sister stayed behind and they were moved from one hard labor camp to another until they were put in a, a sort of a gulag situation where people were worked to death. Her sister and her were both uh, persecuted uh, additionally on two criminal – what they called criminal accounts, both having to do with him, that they own land because they were poor before they were married into his family. They were poor tenant farmers. So they were persecuted on the basis of him being a landowning family and him being a traitorous family because he escaped. Right. Well, they were just persecuted because they were Tibetans, yeah. yeah. So and then their labor camp, This come to find out that slave labor camp was 70 percent women. So that was one of – but many, many times. I, I think the, the, the thing that really um, startled me was I found out more and more that, that the men escaped and who really suffered in Tibet was women. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest is Canyon Salmon. Canyon is spelled just like Canyon, right. C-A-N. 
Y-O-N, right. and Sam is your last name, who is the author of Sky Train, Tibetan Women on the Edge of History, as well as being a performance artist uh, based out of San Francisco. We'll be speaking with Canyon Moore in just a minute, but we're going to take uh, a moment to listen to a music selection, Tina Malia and Shimshai, and they are performing Gayatri Mantra. You've been listening to Tina Malia and Shimshai, and our guest is Canyon Sam. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Canyon, this project stretched well over 20 years for you from the time you began doing the oral history to the time that you published the book. What sustained you in keeping it going? Just grit and uh, bullheadedness. <laughs> no, um, every time I read the material, I said, this has got to get out. People don't know this. And, you know, I remember when I started it, I said, why is this my job? Mm -hmm. But then I realized... Nobody else at that time was going to do it because most of the Western scholars were men of Tibetan Buddhism. This was not, you know, a religious, you know, piece. I wasn't some academic in Tibetan Buddhist religion. And I knew most of the Tibetans were refugees and just struggling with surviving and getting a job and raising their children. So – I knew this material that I had gathered was very, very important. I just had to find a way to get it out. And in the beginning, a lot of uh, people in the publishing industry told me that I had to put myself in the book. But I I kind of refused to do that because I said it's really not about me. I don't have to write a memoir. It's just I want their stories to be out. And it wasn't until much, much later. I started the interviews in 1990 and it wasn't until 2007 that a friend gave me this idea to go back and see the family and find the women again. And that uh, gave me the framework, the narrative framework mm -hmm. uh, in which I could put myself. And so then I put myself in the book. How did you choose the four women to go back and visit again? One of them represents the invasion. One represents the occupation. One represents exile the community in exile, and one represents resistance. They were also 
incredibly gripping, powerful stories. And they were women who knew Tibet when it was an intact society before the occupation um, and could talk a little bit about what Tibet was like you know, before Chinese influence. I always wanted to know how that informed their outlook and their survival. Let me ask you too, um, Canyon, if you were in just a few words going to tell me what you walked away with from the interviews, the exchanges that you had with women, um, and from the whole project itself, what's something that that you got out of it? Their faith, a sense of faith, uh, their courageousness, their resilience, and their the their equanimity. I think I think in our country it's easier to fall into like hopelessness and despair. And I think there's something about their faith and their temperament that they don't go there. And have you taken that into your daily life? I try. When did you first become a Buddhist? Was it after your first visit to Tibet? It was in Dharamsala. You know, what you have to understand about the situation in 86 was there was no mention in 86, not that there is now, that Tibet was a separate country, that it was an independent country. So when I got to Dharamsala and they had this huge, you know, the largest in the world English language library of Tibet-related material, I spent every day in the library reading about culture and history. Eventually, I read about modern history and the political situation with China. And of course, this is 86. So of course, I was – that led me to read about the Dalai Lama because he was the secular head of Tibet. All his political philosophy was completely – underlined by his um, Buddhist philosophy. It was very compassionate. It wasn't like us and them and, you know, my nation against your nation and my region against your region. It was very much his sense of universal responsibility. And uh, this was, you know, enlightening to me. So um, that pulled me into reading more about Buddhism because I thought this is an amazing philosophy for a political leader. I knew nothing about Buddhism. I wasn't raised with any religion. But that's what pulled me into being curious more about what his faith was. Can you tell me um, a little bit about the four women? You you categorize them as representing different facets of life in Tibet. Can you give me just a little character sketch of each of the four women? Well, for instance, Mrs. Namsaling – this was another sort of aha moment because her husband was a treasury minister. He was very high-ranking you know, in the cabinet. So he fled with the Dalai Lama who fled in secret in the middle of the night. He fled with him. So she's got six children. And the other thing was she was giving birth when the Chinese were bombing. You know, Now I realize that what it was like was their 9-11. They had never imagined anything. They had, had no conception of modern warfare. So all of a sudden they're – these tanks and these artillery is around them and and all of a sudden they start bombing from the air. So she was giving birth and she was up on the mountaintop. Every time they had a, a, an uprising or a demonstration, she said, by the time I waddled down to the Norbalinka, you know, because she was eight, eight, eight and a half months pregnant, she said it was all over because I was so slow. So at one point she said, it's so chaotic. I have to give birth and I have to go to a quiet place. She went to this mountaintop and therefore she witnessed when they started bombing Lhasa. And she talks about being torn between rushing to the window to see what is happening, you know, whether they're going to keep destroying the entire city 
and she's worried about the Dalai Lama. They keep bombing the Dornbalinka Palace and because, you know, the, His Holiness means everything to the traditional Tibetans. And then she's torn between saying, no, this is not good for the baby. I have to get away from here. I can't see this. This is really upsetting. I'm going to go be quiet over here. And then she would be quiet, but it, she would hear all these explosions. So she'd run back to the window, back and forth. So her story represents the invasion. Then the other woman, um, who I mentioned already, her husband, you know, an older son, fled with the Rinpoches. And she and her sister, the two wives, were left behind. And they were eventually put in this guy they call it. Um, it's probably not the right pronunciation, but it's a slave labor camp in China. And uh, <laughs> unbelievable sort of conditions. And at one point I asked her how many women and how many men. I just thought it would be both. And she said it was all women. And I said, what happened to the men? And this is – you have to understand that this is when, when they're worked, you know, I can't remember how many days I – mean, how many – 12 hours a day or something, six, seven days a week. Very little food, very little Very little water. food. She says you wake up every day. You can't talk to each other, can't look at each other. Uh, you have beatings at night. Uh, they're called political thumps, self-criticism. But they're all orchestrated. It's political spectacles. So they were beaten and, you know – criticized, politically criticized and denounced every night. So, you know, she said every morning you wake up in the tent and half the people are dead. Then they pull out the bodies and they put fresh people in. Hers was an incredible uh, story of survival, really. And the third person was – represented the resistance. So her name was Sonam Chodron. She was active in the 80s. She had been a child opera star. So she uh, spoke fluent Chinese. She was, you know – very self-possessed, very confident, used to dealing with the Chinese. And she had this underground intelligence service all over Tibet. You know, she had couriers that crisscrossed the Himalayas, took information to the West or around Tibet and, you know, published things. And so they eventually put her in prison. She was a political prisoner. So her story was really amazing because eventually they, they killed her husband, they killed her son, they poisoned her granddaughter, uh, put her put her, one of her two daughters in prison. But she had this amazing sense of uh, sanity and even humor and equilibrium. I mean she was just an amazingly uh, balanced, sane person. And I, I, I just learned a lot from her strength. Um, and the fourth person was uh, Mrs. Rinchendolma Taring. So she's one of my heroes really. She was the first Tibetan woman who spoke English and wrote a wonderful book called Daughter of Tibet in 1970 and um, was tapped by the Dalai Lama to to develop a modern educational school mm -hmm. system in, in India. So she was that bridge between the, what I call old Tibet and the new Tibet. If you can imagine that in the early 60s, she was talking to heads of states and charity organizations all over you know, Canada, Australia, Western Europe and gathering funds and um, setting up these schools. And the, and the schools produced this whole gen present generation of Tibetan leadership in business and government. They were all came through the schools, the Tibetan Homes Foundation or, you know, Central Tibetan Schools, which her, her and her husband ran. And all four women were active Buddhists as well, that there was no, not a separation between their secular life and their spiritual life, if I understood you correctly. Um, Mrs. Namseling, she was interesting because 
she was the one with the married to the treasury minister. And she said um, that she was involved with Buddhism. She was married off to this man who was 38 and powerful when she was 13. So she said, I wasted my youth. She said, I was just chasing after nice dresses and, you know, things that don't mean anything. And since she's lived in exile, she's quite a, a devout student, supports the local nunnery, very involved with her Dharma practice. Um, Mrs. No- Mrs. Taring, she had the inner, you know, I met her when she was 84. I was, uh, I was so curious because her book, Daughter of Tibet, ended in 59. It was just like a cliffhanger. And I was like, what happened after that? So uh, this book, my book sort of, you know, captures her life since then. She's just a fascinating individual because at the age of 50, she started this whole new life, you know. She wanted to have schools in Tibet, but her she was discouraged because her her father had been killed in sort of a political assassination. So they said, just stay low profile. Mm-hmm. She'd be some kind of visionary CEO type now. Uh, but she – by, by the time I met her, she was 84 and um, – she started early in the morning and read her scripture. She was reading for the 13th time the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And she would read. Then she would do correspondence. She would do a million things by breakfast. And then the other woman, Sonam Children, uh, you have to understand this is a very dynamic, fiery, determined, uh, in- indomitably strong woman. You know, they, she was organizing all the women in prison. They're not even supposed to talk to each other. She had them all organized, you know. And, she, and I'd say, weren't you punished? You're chanting. You're do, talking back. You do, Oh, yeah. And she would say, yeah, they tried to torture us. They tried to put us in the snow for two days, you know. But she said, you know, there were times when I was so angry. I could have really killed somebody. I could have, you know, struck back. She said, if you had seen all the injustices and the killings that were perpetrated against the Tibetans. Because you have to understand in, in the very famous – well-known uh, Tibetan uprising day, March 10th, 59, that they, they, they killed many thousands of unarmed Tibetans mm-hmm. and they purposely left them bleeding in the streets. You know, they didn't clean up the bodies for two weeks so that there was rivers of blood. And she saw this when she was 15. It very much politicized her. Kenyon, you talked about um, when you first left the States in, the, in 86 to make your first trip to China and then to Tibet, that you were disillusioned with um, activism. Um, And yet for many, many years now, you've been a full-time activist for Tibet and around issues. Um, What keeps you from being disillusioned now? Well, I think the – why the – my first trip to to Tibet and Dharamsala was so pivotal was because once I became exposed to the Tibetans – and how uh, especially His Holiness's views on politics, that they had to include a greater sense of everybody else besides just your own special interest. Even though I had was somebody who was an artist who always believed that uh, art should be part of social change work and that after that trip, there was another layer of Buddhist practice on top of that. That's why my performance piece and everything is – much more now since that trip informed by Buddhism. Um, my performance piece was about a, a nun, very courageous political prisoner nun and uh, you know, talked about nonviolence 
and body, speech, and mind, nonviolence. And th- that's the difference. I mean, everything turned around then, mm-hmm. you know. Talk to me a little bit about uh, being a performance artist and being a writer and where those two come together for you and, and how they also manifest different creative energies for yourself. Well, I don't do performance art so much anymore. Um, for me, the difference is that in performance art, as soon as the hour's over, you get some feedback. <laughs> when you're a writer, I mean, 19 and a half years, nobody read the book. And now people like come up to me and say, we heard about you in Lithuania. You know, <laughs> I get these – I get the it's, – it's just an amazing thing. So in performance, you do get uh, instant feedback. You can hear them coughing or you can hear them sighing and they're either with you or they're not. And, you know, in, pr- in the printed word, you have to get everything down in black and white. When I was going from print to performance art, uh, I remember I used to – you know, you cut out all the adverbs for one thing because if you just lift an eyebrow, they, could, they you don't have to say I was skeptical or, you know. Mm-hmm. You can really pare it down, you know, in performance art because there's so much that you're showing with your – your body language, your facial expressions, your gestures, your spatial relationships. Um, it's totally it's, it's totally different. I think the one thing in common though is there – you know, I very much work from first-person narrative in both, both genres. Even though, you know, like I said, I resisted putting myself in the book. But it harkens back to when I first became a writer in 1978, uh, you know, I studied this genre called autobiographical fiction and um, it seems to work for me so I go back to it. What's your next project? I'm getting interested in screenplays. So it might be that I just experiment as an exercise writing a screenplay based on the book. Um, you've been uh, selling your book, Skytrain, by um, being around the Dalai Lama. You have a website up. I know that people can get more information. I'll have you share that in just a few minutes. Um, what have you, over that long process of time and the large pile of rejection slips that you uh, put together while you were trying to publish this book, what did you learn about um, starting a project and seeing it through to the end? Well, let's let's put it this way. The most helpful thing um, was one time I saw these these salmon. It was a rain-swollen creek. This was in um, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's in the summer and uh, they took us to the place we were whitewater rafting where the salmon are running upstream. So I thought, oh, this would be interesting. How do they do that? You know, how do they defy gravity? Well, what they did was they would go only as far – just a short little sprint up to the next rock and they would sit there in the draft. So the current, you know, the rapids are coming against them, but they're right hiding in the draft and they're resting until they go to the next – and that's how they get uphill. That's how they get upstream. So I think it's just like taking enough breaks that you can restore yourself and you can just rest and take it easy until – because that's – it's a long haul. You know, it's a long haul. And it's done now for right. this this part of it anyway. Yes. Um, we've been speaking with Canyon Sam who's been our guest on Profiles. Canyon, thank you so much for being with us. Could you um, give people your website as well because I know that there's quite a bit of material on there as well as a great trailer um, about the book? Yes. My website is canyonsam.com and I'm pleased that you know the Dalai Lama 
wrote the foreword. I, I had the great privilege of having a private audience with him the first time I lived in Dharamsala in November 86. And so he was good enough to write the, the foreword. He's quite progressive. I, I don't know if people know this, but he you know, calls, has called himself a feminist. And he has, say, he has said something – this is just a rumor. Uh, but I heard that last October at the peace summit in Vancouver, he, he said the world would be saved by, by Western women. So it's www.canyonsam.com. Thank you so much for being with us. The book is Sky Train, Tibetan Women on the Edge of History. Um, we're going to listen to Nadine Rishi as we go out. Thank you for listening into Profiles. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.